Welcome to your dark baptism. Are you prepared to sign your name in the black book? Are you ready to sacrifice all for the path of night? Are you ready to give- uh, Oh, you're done. Uh, okay, then. Um, well, thank you for coming, everyone. Uh, please stay for refreshments. We have punch and cake. Why do you say that, Father? You aren't afraid, are you? No, but I respect some of the superstitions of others. Often they are founded in fact. Hi, and welcome to Sorceress, a podcast where I chat with authors and audiobook narrators about books and especially audiobooks in the urban fantasy category. If you dig wisecracking wizards, conflicted lycanthropes, antagonistic undead, and all those other things that go bump in the night and then get bumped back, you're in the right place. So make yourself comfortable, salt the doors and the windowsills, and join me, James Anderson Foster, as we get to know the creators of this fascinating genre. Happy Halloween, everybody. We have an extremely special episode for you this week. In honor of Halloween, we have not one, but two narrated stories for you. We have an excerpt from Death March, Black Magic Outlaw Book 6, written by Domino Finn and narrated by Neil Helligers. And then, narrated by yours truly, we have a literally brand new, hot-off-the-presses short story, Decatur Road, written by the master of spookiness himself, Ambrose Ibsen. You're going to love both of these, so sit back, sip on that warm, hot chocolate, and pretend nothing spooky is going to happen to you tonight. I'm sure you'll be just fine. And now, Decatur Road, by Ambrose Ibsen, narrated by James Anderson Foster. There isn't much to see on Decatur Road. There aren't any strip malls out that way, nor any gas stations, but there is a house out there, and it's a real strange-looking thing for its lonesomeness. Squat and flanked by cornfields, it practically jumps out at you as you drive past. The house has a darkness about it, and its features are pinched and stern like those of a man in deep thought. It's the kind of place that'll make you turn your head, make you sit upright as you drive by and think, huh. I'd passed it half a million times on the school bus on dreary, half-awake mornings of every season and in the afternoons on the way home, too. And each time I looked at it from the bus window, I'd sit there and wonder to myself, What's it like inside? There would come a day when I no longer had to wonder. Dwellers in small towns can't help but chase a good mystery. It's a bad itch, and the only thing waiting for you if you don't scratch it are reruns or aimless bike rides. So, you scratch. You scratch good and deep, and even when it hurts a little, you hold out hope that you'll find something interesting, something that'll make it all worthwhile underneath the skin. 
I wish I hadn't scratched. I got up one morning with some three months of summer still ahead of me and the idea that I was going to have a close-up look at that dark old house. I couldn't tell you why I had to see it up close. Decatur Road was on the fringe, far from my usual haunts. I suppose I fancied myself a modern-day Pizarro and decided that place needed explored, documented. It was rightful Spanish clay. I asked my father if he knew the place. Seeing as how he'd grown up in town himself, I expected him to be familiar with it. Imagine my surprise then when I learned that the house on Decatur Road didn't stir in him an equal fascination. The old man had never been the talkative kind, and that morning as he was preparing to run errands, he'd given me one of his standard-issue shrugs. Probably full of tweakers. After a late breakfast, I asked my mother if she knew the house. She didn't know anything about it. In fact, the only thing she had to add was a stern warning not to venture that far from home. That's a long way from here, so don't you even think about going. I don't want you loitering halfway across town, Simon. My mother's warning just about derailed the whole thing, and I'll admit that I even second-guessed myself at that point. Why go all that way just to look at a crummy old house? What was the allure? My time would almost certainly be better spent at the arcade, the local pool, the movies. And yet, as the hours passed, my mind kept on kicking at the notion of that house as though it were a hornet's nest. I wasn't afraid of getting stung. I just wanted to see with my own eyes what was inside. I found myself at the local arcade where I burned absentmindedly through a pocket full of quarters over the course of an hour. When I finally gave up on the Soul Calibur machine, I spied a familiar face sitting at the food court, knocking back a large soda. It was Jack Hudson, a classmate of mine. He'd also ridden the same bus as me for the past two years. Ordinarily, I wouldn't have said a word to the kid. I didn't much like him, but that afternoon, I started into the food court and approached his table with the intention to strike up a conversation. It occurred to me, since we'd been on the same bus, that he might know something about the house. Jack Hudson was, well, a big kid. He was a whole head shorter than me, but substantially wider and with a mop of grease-slick brown curls that quaked with his every step. He had a high, almost feminine voice on him, that one. Bordering on shrill, it was the kind of voice you couldn't bear to listen to for very long, which is likely one of the reasons he didn't have any friends. I knew a thing or two about him. His dad was locked up, and his mother was a hairdresser who packed him extra big lunches, almost as if to try and make up for the lack of a father figure. On the bus, he'd always had headphones on or his nose in a book. We made some awkward small talk, exchanged the usual niceties about summer break, and then I came right out and said what was on my mind. Say, Jack, you know that house on Decatur Road? We pass by it on the bus all the time, the one sitting in that cornfield. You know anything about it? He only had to think on it for an instant before he nodded. Oh, yeah, I know it. I've been inside. I gave him a dumb stare like I'd just been slapped upside the head. What, R really? He nodded while his tongue went searching for the straw in his soda. Bullshit, I said, cracking a grin. 
He waggled his eyebrows as he slurped at his drink. No, I, I mean it. I couldn't wrap my head around this. Jack Hudson, of all people, had paid a visit to that old house that so fascinated me. The very thought all but robbed the property of intrigue. Well, what for? Your granny lived there or something? Setting the cup down daintily, he tugged on the hem of his polo and shook his head, the curls coming along for the ride. Nah, it was a while back. I went there once, with my dad. It was years ago, come to think of it. You went with your dad? Yep. Why? He tossed his shoulders. He had some work to do there, something like that. So what's it like inside? I don't remember too well. I was only in there for a minute or two, and anyway, it was years ago, like I said. He smiled a tight smile that cut into his flabby cheeks. Why, what about it? I chuckled. Well, I don't know, just been a little bored. Want to see something new, you know? I figure that house must be abandoned or something, or if someone does live in it, they must be an old hermit. I blushed as I tried to articulate my interest in the place, and the more I talked, the more stupid I felt for wanting to go out there at all. Jack furrowed his brow, and for a time, he didn't say anything. I almost took that as my cue to leave, but he suddenly spoke up, his voice cracking a little. Someone does live there, sorta. Oh? He nodded. I, uh, I don't like to talk about it, really. It was a long time ago, and I only went there because my dad had to stop inside to do some business. This was before he went to jail, you know? Uh-huh, I prodded. Well, he left me in the car a while, in the driveway. When I went into the house to find him, I saw him in one of the bedrooms, and he was talking to... Here he paused, and his body seemed to fight back a shudder. He was talking to a snake man. I waited a few seconds for him to break frame and start laughing, but when it became clear he wasn't kidding around, I burst out laughing instead. A snake man? Now what the hell is that supposed to be? Well, he explained with that pudgy smile and those pinched up eyes, it's exactly what it sounds like. He crawls like a snake. Here, he paused to give his rotund body a demonstrative shimmy. And he kind of talks like a snake, too. So he lives there? What's he do all day, eat mice? I guess so. Jack's smile faded. When I walked in there, I was real scared. My dad yelled at me, told me to get out. I did, and I ran back to the car. My dad came out a little while after that, and he wasn't talking much. I think he was scared, too. Not long after that, the police came and took him away. He cleared his throat. You know, he's a good guy, my dad. He never did none of the stuff people accused him of. Huh, was all I could think to say. Now, at 15, I was too old to believe this load of bull, but also too young to dismiss it out of hand. When someone tells you about something bizarre they've seen in your hometown, even if it sounds unbelievable, you might be inclined to go along with it because you hope it's true. Well, thanks, Jack, I said. I'll see you on the bus. I started out of the food court already knowing how I planned to spend the remainder of my day. 
I needed to pay the snake man of Decatur Road a visit. I charged out of the mall parking lot on my Schwinn. I'd run through the ride in my head a few times and knew it would take me about an hour to get to Decatur Road. Once I got there, I'd take my time and explore. Then, an hour and a half's ride would get me home. Mom and Dad always expected me back by dark. The way things were going, I'd make curfew by the skin of my teeth. Pausing only to grab a soda from the vending machine outside the grocery store, I rolled down Front Street where the library and elementary school were. I then hung a left on Waterman, passing the video store, police station, and health clinic. Further on, as I coasted into Villiers Avenue, I left behind other familiar sights. The cathedral, the funeral home, the adult bookshop. Finally, I hooked a right on Decatur and was surrounded on all sides by vast fields. Some were vacant, overgrown. Others, better manicured, boasted crops such as corn. Traffic proved almost non-existent out there, and as I charged down the shoulder, the only sound I could hear, aside from the tinging of my spokes, was the mumbling of insects. The sky overhead went cloudy as I neared the house, offering me a welcome reprieve from the sun. Starting down a brief incline, I was careful not to slide into the drainage ditch to my right while scanning the distance. It was futile, though. That house always snuck up on me. Just as it had done from the bus, the house jumped into view suddenly. My bike groaned as I wobbled it to a halt. The house, the object of my obsession, stood silently before me, and this time I didn't pass it by at 40 miles an hour. I was in a position now to take it all in, to compare the reality of the thing against the mental caricature I'd pieced together through my hundreds of seconds-long glances. Its three road-facing windows were intact and backed by dense darkness, and its roof sagged atop it like a well-worn beanie. The remnants of a gravel drive could be seen to one side, but the pebbles had been scattered by tall growing weeds, and the whole thing was overshadowed by dying cornstalks. No one had been here for a very long time. I wheeled my bike up the drive and parked it as I studied the front door. It was the color of a walnut shell, and every bit is textured. And it was ajar. All signs pointed to abandonment. I could leisurely explore the entire property without getting into any trouble, it seemed. Except, now that I was here, I wasn't sure I wanted to. Part of that was the thought of putting an end to the mystery. We all need a little mystery in our lives, and I feared that... Going inside and seeing the place would bring mine to a close. But that was only a small part of my hesitance. The bulk of it was owed to a change in my perception of the house. Over the course of hundreds of bus rides, the abode had cultivated a certain curiosity in me, but now that I stood before it, that curiosity had been silently and swiftly replaced by a palpable distrust. It didn't look so friendly from up close. Jack Hudson had claimed to see a snake man in this house, and as I gawked at it, I got the distinct feeling that it hadn't been such a ridiculous claim after all. If snake men existed, then it stood to reason they'd live in a house like this one, far from the rabble. 
anxious and yet cautiously optimistic about what awaited me within, I made my decision. There was nothing to do but go inside. I pushed open the door, and when it had finally stopped on its weather-beaten hinges, I waited in the doorway a long while, just getting a feel for the entryway. There appeared to be wood floors throughout, and a forceful push with the heel of my sneaker proved them solid enough to walk on. Sure, now that the water was fine, I waded in a little deeper. The door led directly into a large space I took for a living room, though there wasn't any furniture there to help me make that distinction. Whoever had lived here previously, whenever that had been, had cleared everything out. The floors sagged and groaned as I gave the room a once-over. Gray light tumbled in sluggishly through the windows. The old glass looked a little warped, and it didn't treat the light at all like the newer panes at my house did. The effect was disorienting. When my survey of that first room was complete, I went looking through the rest of the house. There was an adjacent room, somewhat smaller, that might have been a dining or TV room. A spacious closet sat between the kitchen and living room, but was lacking a door. The thing gaped there, black and empty like a screaming mouth. I inched into the kitchen, across a floor of yellowed, peeling linoleum. There were grooves in the stuff where hefty appliances had once sat, but that was the only trace of them that remained. The counters, where they still stood, were in a terrible state, and the cabinets buckled underneath them as though the slightest breeze might see them crumble. I felt a lot of things as I meandered through that house. It was certainly exhilarating, finally getting a chance to explore, but after casing each room, I shouldered less excitement and more melancholy. Houses were made to be lived in, and this poor old thing out here had been sitting empty for what seemed like ages. I felt flashes of disappointment and embarrassment, too. Disappointment because I hadn't yet encountered the snake man that allegedly dwelt there, and embarrassment because I'd been thick enough to hope for its existence in the first place. The tour continued down a narrow hall. This portion of the house contained little of interest. A bathroom through the first hallway door showcased the same linoleum as the kitchen and nothing else. The sink, toilet, and bathtub had been ripped away and the window boarded. Further on, I discovered bedrooms behind two other doors, but these, like every other part of the house, were empty. Having reached the finish line, I paced about the interior room and drew out a deep sigh. I'd come to the house on Decatur Road, seen all it had to offer, but the achievement felt utterly hollow. This room, with its partially boarded window, was darker than the rest. There was a closet built into the wall opposite with an immovable sliding door that had fallen off its track and a foul-looking water spot on the ceiling. This was what I'd biked all across town for. This was what I'd pined to explore all those years. When Jack Hudson had told me about his visit to the house, about the snake man, I'd gotten my hopes up. I'd been dumb enough to believe that this out-of-the-way property might contain something sufficiently interesting to warrant the intrigue I'd heaped upon it over the years. It turned out to be nothing more than a shell, though, a hollowed-out husk of a house. 
What did Jack and his father come to this house for, I wondered. Maybe they'd paid a visit prior to its abandonment. Perhaps when the two of them had come, it had still been inhabited and furnished. I knew next to nothing about Jack's dad, save that he was behind bars. There was no telling what might bring a disreputable guy like Mr. Hudson out here, but what really left me scratching my head was this supposed snake man. What had Jack seen that had left him with that impression? Had he just been goofing around when he'd told me about it? I went to glance at my watch, but startled as the silence broke. From the closet with the jammed door, there came a sudden bout of rattling. Something weighty had shifted against the inside of the door, and with it came a mess of crinkling. I learned that day that an empty room is never as empty as it seems. The rattling continued, then transitioned into a steady thumping, as of something struggling to break free of the closet. I braced myself against the wall, heart thumping in my throat. Frightened though I was, I didn't run off immediately. I still possessed a touch of reason and told myself that I was merely hearing some trapped animal trying to escape. Superadded to the sounds of the struggle, though, was that crinkling noise. Echoing from the cramped space, it sounded rough, rough like a serpent's skin, perhaps. Now and then, a prolonged hiss, not unlike that of a leaky tire, would ring out, and from across the room I couldn't help imagining its maker boasting a forked tongue. The snake man of Decatur Road, I thought, it's real, it's actually real. I wanted to run, but my legs were numb with terror. I could hardly hold myself up and had to rely on the wall to my back to keep from slumping to the floor. The closet door began to bow outward as the pressure against it grew, and the bottom edge of the thing made an awful sound as it dragged against the floor, wood on wood. At some point, the energetic struggle behind it somehow loosened the stubborn door, and it fell to one side with a crash. I was not prepared for what I glimpsed on the other side. No longer confined, something seized and rolled out of the closet. It tumbled to the floor with a wet smack as though it had been ejected. Covered in a semi-translucent skin, the thing immediately began to writhe upon the floor, and I saw in its filmy carapace vivid streaks of red. End to end, it probably measured six feet long, and though I stared on in wide-eyed horror, I couldn't tell which end was its head. It had the appearance of a massive, glossy caterpillar, and as it thrashed and thumped against the floorboards, I half wondered if it wasn't going to undergo a sudden metamorphosis. But then other sounds began issuing from its crinkling carapace. Between all the squelching and shuddering, I heard a monstrous hiss and a terrible gargling, and then I began noticing other things about this creature, namely a human head deep within it, and a pair of bulging bloodshot eyes staring out at me. What I'd taken for a crinkling transparent skin was actually tightly wrapped plastic, and the bands of red that marred its length were streaks of blood dredged up by the feeble flailing of slashed limbs deep within the nest of material. It was a man, wrapped in layer after layer of plastic, and as he inched towards me like a worm, I saw him grit his teeth in a pained hiss and watched as his throat, bright red and neatly cut, 
loosed a trickle of gore. Ragged breaths left the inside of the plastic foggy, and I noticed that the entire package had been tightly secured with what must have been a roll of clear packing tape. I don't remember running. I don't remember getting onto my bike either, but somehow I managed to ride several miles away. The next thing I can recall was wheeling into my front yard, crashing to the ground. I was very slow in getting up, and when I did, I spent a solid five minutes heaving into the grass. I didn't tell anyone what I saw. Even at that age, I knew better. They wouldn't have believed me. All it would have earned me was a lengthy grounding for having disobeyed my mother, so I kept it to myself, and really, that was easier. I wasn't sure I could stand the thought of describing what I'd seen aloud anyhow. When the nightmares finally stopped and I found myself wanting answers, I started poking around, asking questions. Naturally, I looked into the one who'd turned me onto it in the first place. I'd never known why Jack Hudson's dad had been locked up. I'd assumed he was some kind of crook, maybe a drug peddler or a con artist. Wouldn't you know, it turned out he was serving a life sentence for murder. Back in 94, after an illicit business deal had gone bad, Hudson had killed a man. The papers, which I managed to find at the library archive, didn't spell out everything, but gave me enough details to connect the dots. The pair had met at a house on Decatur Road where the victim was living, and after an altercation, Hudson had dispatched his ex-business partner with a knife. The body was then hidden within the house. Hudson admitted to authorities that he'd left it in a closet. His plan had been to return to the house in the dead of night to dispose of it. He never got the chance, however. The victim, with the last of his energies, had crawled from the closet through the house and made it nearly to the street before death took him. The body was discovered in the driveway by a passing motorist, and forensic evidence on the scene linked Hudson to the crime. That had taken place over three years ago. What papers had left out was that little Jack Hudson had been there that day. He'd seen the dying man, had watched him squirm across the floor in his death throes, like a snake. It turns out you can strip everything from a house, except for its soul. Sometimes what happens between those walls gets stuck there and doesn't want to budge. Sometimes, if you go looking hard enough, a house will show you what it's really about. It can't help but showcase its wounds. The trauma plays on like a nasty voicemail message you can't delete, sticks around like a busted lip you can't quit chewing on. Those empty rooms are never as empty as they seem. There isn't much to see on Decatur Road, at least at first glance. And now an excerpt from Death March by Domino Finn, performed by Neil Helligers. Chapter One The bottle of Corona slammed the bar with enough force to bubble over. The gruff man tending bruise paid it no mind. He was, after all, the one being so forceful in the first place. I dropped a fiver and grunted. 
feeling a more appropriate gesture of thanks would be wasted. The establishment, if it could be called that, was more like a storeroom than a bar. The exterior was a nondescript reinforced door in a grungy but gentrifying downtown adjacent neighborhood. The interior was stripped down to the concrete and somehow even more grimy. I didn't know what I'd expected, but it wasn't this. I took a pull from the bottle, bit back the warm beer, and rolled the metal bracelet over my fingers. How the hell had I ended up here? A heavy shoulder brushed me as a man stumbled against the padded counter. Whoa there, he croaked. Sometimes you catch the bar, sometimes the bar catches you. I straightened and cast him in his impromptu poetry a sidelong glance. In his thirties, sharp orange hair, freckled face. No worries, I said evenly. Another man settled over my opposite shoulder. Jamaican, maybe. The weathered bartender turned his back and pretended to disappear. Of course, observed the first knucklehead. Sometimes it's your lucky day and you catch something else entirely. That was when I noticed they both wore bones around their neck. Not finger digits or anything so orc-like. These beads were most likely harvested from chicken skeletons. I frowned. These guys had nothing to do with my purpose here. Careful, I warned, taking a big step backward to look them both in the eye. I'm not here to start a fight with Santero hucksters. And trust me, you're not here to start a fight with me. Their eyes narrowed. The Jamaican's gaze dropped to the silver dog whistle hanging from my neck, the skull and pentacle belt buckle. His face went to full alert. You're bingo, I said with a wink. I leaned back into the bar and took a swig of warm beer. Don't you turn your back on me, said the white dude, placing a firm hand on my shoulder. His boy retreated to his side and pulled him off. Don't you know who that is, he whispered, doing a poor job of concealing his voice. His friend scoffed. Just another asshole got lost in the wrong watering hole. No, you idiot. That's... He lowered his voice even more. The one who walks with Opiel. My eyebrows reached for my hair. I hadn't heard that one before. Funny how much a legend can grow in a year. I kept my casual attention focused on the bottle in my hands, hoping the Santeros would go away of their own accord. The ornery one stared at me for a good minute, focusing and refocusing and nearly losing his balance once, which meant his initial stumble wasn't part of the act. You sure, he concluded. Looks like a dumbass jock to me. I ground my teeth. Legends I could deal with. The jock label, not so much. The physique wasn't me as much as it was an upgrade, part of the all-new Cisco Suarez. But growing up, I was a skinny kid. Not a wimp, mind you, because I always fought back. I just wouldn't win that often. I preferred my battles in the realms of Dungeons and Dragons, comics, and fantasy novels. Basically anything that had cool dragons in it. That was before I'd encountered real dragons, of course. Now I'm not so hot on them. I frowned and wrapped the metal bracelet against the bar. I'm serious, urged the Jamaican. It's him. Well, all the more reason to whoop him then. 
I sighed sharply and turned. They started, but they didn't need to. I wasn't making a move. Look, I said, clearing the air. Things happened last year. Things beyond my control. The tough guy sneered. That's not the way I hear it. Well, it's the way it was. And I'm sick of explaining myself to you guys. The friend didn't want any part of this conversation, but the troublemaker cleared his throat and gained confidence. I lost my job, you know. Some of us lost a whole lot more. I winced and took a calming breath. He wasn't entirely out of line. That, that wasn't me. Listen, how about I buy you a round of drinks and we shake it out? I know what they say about me, but I don't have a problem with other necromancers. I'm one of you guys. He spat at my feet and made a fist. I twitched my hand. The dog collar fetish on my wrist thrummed and a sliver of shadow rose from the floor and wrapped up his arm tight. He could no longer lift his hand, much less throw a punch. My face darkened as the very shadow crept over it. Not smart. His friend threw a hand up and tugged him away. It's okay. He's chill. I let him go, even though his expression was anything but. They retreated several steps before getting in a hushed argument. The Jamaican eventually gave up and stormed out of the makeshift bar. Smart guy. The white dude wasn't left alone, however. He glared at me before rejoining his buddies at the pool table. More Santeros, by the looks of it. I settled back on the bar and scowled at the corona. My reputation within the Miami Santeria and voodoo communities was something else. More infamy than celebrity. In a city full of brujos and bocors, that was dangerous business. Lucky for me, or maybe for them. Most knew better than to pick a fight. A girl on the corner barstool chuckled. I couldn't decide if she was a cokehead or a prescription pusher, but I was in the ballpark. A waif of a thing, without the nice clothes or makeup that would have stood out in this dive. When my eyes landed on her, she took a long drag of her menthol and arched an eyebrow. So much for flying under the radar. A casual glance at the surrounding patrons showed either an avid interest in my well-being or a strong desire to feign otherwise. The cat was out of the bag. I slid a few seats closer to the waif. You're not gonna ask if that seat's taken? She drawled. Her voice was a surprising falsetto. Sweet, almost innocent, and decidedly country. It didn't match the packaging except for maybe the twin pigtails pinning back her light hair. I've been here long enough to know better. She exhaled smoke in my face and I pretended not to notice. She had large hoop earrings, a nose stud, and black fingernails, but no apparent instruments of spellcraft. Besides, I get the feeling you're dying for good company. She showed her teeth. No such thing round here. They were a nice set of teeth for a rundown girl, and she made sure to accentuate them as she played with her tongue piercing. I twirled the loose bracelet on the bar. The metal droned like a spinning coin, faster and faster until I snatched it and did it again. The bartender eyed me gruffly. That was his thing, I guess. So what's your fancy? Asked the girl. No spell tokens here. You don't look the pill-popping sort. She appraised me with her lips pursed. 
And if it's anything else you're looking for, you won't find it here. It was an interesting stance to take in front of the only employee in sight. She was essentially claiming ownership of the operation here. The bartender was staring, chewing on a toothpick, too old and apathetic to say anything one way or the other. He simply hovered close and wiped bar glasses with a dusty towel. Funny you should say that, I started. Because I am looking for something. Someone, really. I pulled a school photo from the back pocket of my jeans and placed it on the bar. Ever seen this girl? She scoffed. Mister, ain't she a little young for you? I wrapped the bracelet on the bar. I'd found it in the grass where the kid had disappeared. It was a cheap piece of aluminum with multicolored beads. Not extraordinary by any measure, except for the blood staining the surface. The girl's eyes flared, sending a chill down my back. Something was off about this place. I continued matter-of-factly. Her name is Gendra. A lot of people are looking for this girl. Her parents, the police. Her eyes shimmered as she extinguished her cigarette. Even little old you. I leaned in. Not a lot gets by me. I left out my personal interest in the kidnapping. It wasn't that I knew the girl, but she'd been taken from my daughter's middle school. Second one this month, which was a little close to home. No offense to Miami's finest, I said. But I know a trick or two they don't. The discarded bracelet on the side of the road doesn't mean much, but this one has a bit of blood. I held the bracelet to her face. She tensed and sniffed the air like a predator. Someone like me can learn a lot from a bit of blood. She regained her composure and playfully twirled a pigtail. I don't know what you're talking about, mister. Then there's the matter of the windowless black van that cruises the school. The same van parked in the back alley right now. Her eyes shifted to the bartender. I definitely hit a nerve. The part about the van had mostly been a bluff. But they didn't know what my magic could do, or how much I knew. The old man set a glass down, draped the towel over his shoulder, and retreated into the back room. I let him go. Look, mister, you know this girl? She under your protection or something? I grinned wryly. They're all under my protection. Chairs abruptly scraped the concrete. Two wannabe bouncers stood, puffing out their chests and cracking their knuckles. One was stupid looking, and the other one looked stupid. I noticed the hothead and his buddies weren't at the pool table anymore. Most in the dive bar had evacuated. This guy bothering you, Tootie? Asked the stupid-looking one. I groaned. The bartender's not getting the manager, is he? They chuckled. Let's be reasonable, wizard. You can't storm in here and make demands. I don't care who you are. The other one clenched and unclenched a fist in anticipation. Curiously, they both had black nail polish, too. What, did I miss the flyer for goth night? My eyes darted to Tootie's fingers, currently elongated into black claws and scraping a groove in the hardwood. She flashed a predatory smile. Two long canines grew into place, 
and her lashes fluttered seductively. Mama, now there's the face of a man who's never heard of the Obsidian March. Chapter Two Unexpected was an understatement. I'd known new players were making moves in Miami in the wake of the destruction of the largest drug cartel in the history of the Caribbean. But vampires? Obviously, I hadn't thought this little meet and greet through. The Obsidian March, I repeated. That your online guild name or something? Cut the shit, snapped Tootie, jumping to the bar top. Her movements were erratic but fluid towing the line between capable and out of control. Want me to take him? Asked the bigger of the guys. No. He knows too much. He'll keep it to himself, she asserted, turning to me. You know how this goes, wizard. We do our thing, you do yours. No need for the masses to sniff either of us out. I scowled at how she lumped us together. I was nothing like them. I want the girl, she snickered. You think we're gonna wind down our operations because you walk in here and say so? The Obsidian March has roots in this city that go farther back than your recent rise. Then maybe it's time to rip those roots from the ground. The men transformed right before me. Their eyes milked over, their skin went black. And I'm not talking African descent black, but a polished obsidian like their namesake. It hardened into a flexible carapace. Their noses and ears melded with their heads, their faces grew flat, and, you guessed it, their fingers doubled into sharpened knives. They hissed and swiped at me. In a blink, I dissolved into the shadows. My body became ethereal, slipping past their claws and bulky bodies until I solidified behind and shoved them into the bar. Cut it out, ordered Tootie standing over us with outstretched arms. The men turned on me and froze. I took slow steps back to give us some space. Good practice around vampires. Trashy clogs wrapped the bar. This isn't an ambush, wizard. We're not fighting you. I cocked my head to the side. Could have fooled me. She glared coldly and hopped to the floor. Again, a sudden movement with alien grace. I backed away as shadow billowed over my fist. Tootie scoffed at the show of power. But this is a declaration of intentions. The march halts for no man, woman, or child. If you have services or property to negotiate, come back when you're feeling more congenial. But never dictate terms, wizard. A siren broke the city noise. The vampire smiled. Speaking of Miami's finest. Tootie pointed at the door to the back alley. The three surged forward, leaving me a choice. Stand my ground or go. I maneuvered to the door. I hadn't banked on tussling with vampires today, but it wouldn't be the first time I'd seen something of their sort. The real problem was the police. And the girl, I said. Tootie twirled the pigtail and pouted. I'm afraid that one didn't work out. She's beyond even you now. I went red at the thought. 
you sick fucks. My shotgun materialized from the ether. The bodyguards reacted quickly. They batted my aim to the side. I spun with the blow as the other grabbed at my old position. It was a simple matter to send a locomotive of shadow into him. It bowled him over two tables and the bar. The police siren grew louder. The second bouncer lunged. I hopped back to avoid the attack while working a rope of shadow around his waist. I closed my fist and pulled, pinning him to the far wall, unharmed but out of the action. That left Tootie and me unmolested. By now the girl had a serrated blade gripped between two fingers, readying a throw. I was faster. I lifted the shotgun and fired, sending a custom blend of buckshot and spark powder into her gut. A roar of fire exploded and sent her spinning through the air. Tires skidded in the curbside gravel. I opened the back door and scanned the bar, angry I couldn't finish what I started. The bloodlust distracted me. A rubber alternator belt wrapped around my neck and yanked me outside. The sudden transition to sunlight blinded me. Yes, CD bars operate daytimes. Hell, it wasn't even noon yet. This unfortunately meant my shadow spellcraft was limited. Before my eyes could fully adjust, a fist slammed into my cheek. I kicked out and caught a groin with a red alligator boot. The dude doubled over with a high-pitched squeal. It was the hothead Sentero with his pool buddies, minus the Jamaican who'd had the sense to leave. That meant I was only surrounded by five guys now. The Sentero coughed and climbed to his feet. You're gonna pay for that, Brujo. I checked the back door, which had shut itself. With the Miami sun beating down, it was doubtful the vamps would join this particular party. I also noticed the black van was gone. You guys are either very stupid or very drunk, I muttered. Could be both, said the guy squeezing the alternator belt around my neck. His friends glared at him. I shook my head. Cisco, is it? Asked the Centero, deepening his voice to mask his bruised ego. This is from Johnny Red. He punched me in the gut. I cackled. What kind of stupid name is Johnny Red? And why would he call himself that? A couple of them chuckled. The hothead's face flushed. It's me, he snapped. I'm Johnny Red. Tell him he punches like a girl. He smoldered. You. He telegraphed a haymaker. I waited as it came and threw up an arm block. He struck the armor tattoo along the outside of my left forearm. Blue light flared and several bones in his hand crunched. He reeled and screamed, kill this asshole. A fist came from the side. I lurched forward, pulling the dummy choking me into the blow. He dropped the belt and stumbled away, cupping a bleeding nose. I didn't bother looking for Shadow. I punched the surprised guy who just hit his friend and then kicked the knee out from another. The last one danced in place for precious seconds as his brain processed the situation, but it wasn't long before he bolted. A white and green police car turned into the alley with a quick chirp of its siren. The runner scrambled and turned, jumping over a chain-link fence. This isn't over, swore Johnny Red, hunched over his broken hand. I sighed and cracked him in the face with my boot, sending him to La La Land. Then I turned to escape around the block. Another police car veered ahead of me. They had us on both sides, 
I contemplated the door to the dive bar before it slammed open. An officer on foot rushed me. I threw up my hands and dropped to my knees, unwilling to escalate this any further. Overexcited police officers in brown uniforms converged on us, barked commands, and slammed me face first to the asphalt. I ground my teeth as the handcuffs clinked into place. We were all going in. Not a good day to be a necromancer. And as always, a very special shout out to our Patreon patrons. There's C. Stephen Manley, Colleen O'Malley Jackson, Mike Johnson, Audiobooks After Dark, Zachary McElroy, and Dogan Foster. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to lend your support and get your name mentioned at the end of an episode like this, all you have to do is head over to patreon.com forward slash sorceress and sign up to support us at the wisecracking wizarding level or higher. Thank you so much. And that's it for this time. Thanks for dropping by. We really hope you enjoyed it and will come back and see us again. You can find Sorceress on iTunes, Stitcher, and our website, Sorceress. That's S-O-R-C-E-R-O dot U-S. And you can find me at jamesnarrates.com, where you'll find a list of audiobooks, demos, and all the usual stuff. If you're enjoying Sorceress, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher, and if you're really enjoying it, it'd be mighty kind of you to drop a buck or two in the kitty. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com forward slash sorceress, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash James Narrates. Any support, no matter how small, is greatly appreciated, and it'll help us keep on keeping on. So until next time, when things go bump in the night, remember to bump back.